This is writer and game designer Robin D. Law. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrain Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Shakespearean gaming. Ingredient combos. Ruth Tillman. And the Big Apple Book Raid. Just because something isn't widely known doesn't mean it isn't true. Why, that's one of the entire themes of this here show. In Atlas Games' new cooperative deck-building board game, Witches of the Revolution, you play a coven of witches. You and your allies must deploy your powers to make sure the American Revolution succeeds. And the hated British are cast forever out of these United States. Just like it really happened. Witches of the Revolution is a truly cooperative game without traitor mechanics or backdoor winners, and every player can can influence the outcome every turn. It's a subtly different deck builder where adding more cards to your deck can be as perilous as it is helpful, so you have to make good choices. Witches work together to overcome events like the rise of witch hunters, the seizure of printing presses, and enchanted cannons slipping into enemy hands. Overcoming events helps the coven fulfill objectives, like resurrecting Benjamin Franklin or curing Paul Revere of lycanthropy. Fulfill four objectives to win the game and ensure the success of the revolution. Download the rulebook, read more, or check out video reviews at atlas-games.com slash W-O-T-R. Or leave immediately for your local game store. Before it's taken over by the hated British. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive once more welcome us to the gaming hut. But here in the gaming hut, the dice are shaved and carved in odd angles. The Doritos are actually some sort of uh, hammered wheat disc. I'm not even sure what the hell they are. <laughs> and it's not Peter Frampton coming alive. It's Edmund Allen coming alive because we are in Shakespeare times. Chris Camfield has asked us. Would that be a Patreon backer, Chris Camfield? That would be. That's the Patreon backer, Chris Camfield, not the lesser Chris Camfields that go around the world, has asked us how, through GMing or mechanics, can you make a campaign feel Shakespearean? Pick one of tragedy, history, or comedy. And I note that he sneakily ab uh, avoids subject material, which is how I've done it many times. So, uh, Robin, what do we do? Um, do we want to pick one right now, or do we want to talk about Shakespeare, and then at the very last minute pick one? I don't know. If I, I may not even have the discipline to pick one. We right. may want to discourse on all three. We may be a problem play like Troilus and Cressida. Exactly, yes. So, uh, first of all, if you uh, have your Ken and Robin bingo cards at home, uh, you'll be able to knock off uh, your uh, entries for Robin Mentions uh, Drama System, uh, Robin Mentions Pantheon and other role-playing games, and also Robin Mentions Northrop Fry. So <laughs> you're halfway done. You are um, you are so set up there on the left hand of the board. Right. So uh, naturally, as, as a game designer, uh, my standard uh, way to start answering these questions is to look at my back catalog and see if I got anything in the drawer for you. And of course, uh, Drama System is all about character interaction and uh, not so much about uh, fighting, because, of course, there are famously uh, some uh, some fighting in Shakespeare. Uh, of course, the duel at the end of Hamlet uh, being, spoilers, being one of them. Uh, 
But it's not the main action. Uh, Shakespeare is mostly about character interaction, no matter which of those uh, three categories we're in. But if you want to do a uh, tragedy, I would definitely come up with a, a drama system series pitch. Uh, I would note, first of all, that uh, Shakespeare uh, does not do tragedy the way Aristotle would have predicted he would, uh, <laughs> except with, with the possible exception of Lear, depending on how you read his Lear's uh, what may or may not be a moment of lucidity near the end. He might have an anagnorisis, the moment of horrible realization that you've set in motion terrible events that you can no longer do anything to uh, reverse or ameliorate. But the rest of the time, his tragic heroes just have bad things happen to them or and sometimes deservedly, as in yeah. Macbeth. I think, I think Richard III has an anagnorisis at the very end where he, he realizes that he's doomed and has screwed everything up. And then his response is, all right, then I'm going to fight everyone and kill them. Right. <laughs> so that's, that's what we call a, a fleeting reverse anagnorisis. And it would be just like Shakespeare to sneak the formal elements of tragedy into one of his history plays, just, yeah. just to throw people off, off guard. Um, but there is the sense of uh, a topple from a great height that is brought yeah. about by a failure to integrate your internal contradictions so that uh, Hamlet does not in time integrate his uh, conflict between being a man of contemplation and a man of action. And Macbeth does not succeed in uh, dealing with the uh, conflict between uh, his uh, nobility and his uh, venality. And, and and Othello does not uh, reconcile being a, a trusting lover with being a uh, alert warrior. Right. Uh, so what you could do there is create a, a, a drama system series pitch where everybody's dramatic. Everybody already comes with dramatic poles that are internal contradictions. And then your direction to the group is that one or more of you at the climactic uh, moments of this uh, campaign uh, are going to be destroyed by your failure to uh, integrate the, t the two uh, halves of you, and the rest of you will turn out to have been the uh, the watchers, the monitors, the, the Horatios, uh, if, if you will. Uh, and perhaps another person is the antagonist who uh, brings things uh, to a head, so that uh, you know one person turns out to be the Lady Macbeth or the uh, the Iago, uh, another turns out to be the main a tragic figure who topples because of their failure to integrate the internal contradictions and uh, the rest. And presumably one of you is the, the Fortinbras, the one who steps in at the end and uh, restores order and uh, becomes the, the new uh, uh, ruler or the new, the, the voice of the new order. And what's up for grabs is who's who and anybody can potentially be any of those things. And what we're going to explore in this uh, campaign is, uh, who do you all turn out to be in terms of your Shakespearean uh, tragic templates? While we're uh, uh, signing off on games that uh, exist already in the field, we should mention um, Michelle Lyons McFarlane's game, uh, Tragedy in Five Acts, which is, in so many words, a Shakespeare emulator. And it involves an act in which something has to happen and you drive toward that uh, climax, that in internal act climax as part of the pre-approved action in 
the game. And I have done that, although not in that game. I did it in, uh, weirdly enough, Robin's game Hero Quest, in which I ran a Shakespearean feeling game set in uh, the London theater scene in the Georgian era, uh, such that uh, the uh, Covent Garden and Drury Lane theaters were competing to magically access the Shakespearean green realm. And the game itself was a Shakespearean play. And as we drove forward, I in very deliberately set up the sort of stages of a campaign as acts in a Shakespearean uh, play. And we did not know until uh, Craig Newmeyer's character failed a role incredibly dramatically, whether we were doing a tragedy or not, uh, when he failed his role to resist his um, inner manticore nature. Um, we knew it was a tragedy. It was a tragedy about Craig's character. And then Everyone sort of played towards that. And, and, and that you knew is, the title of the play was the Manticore. Yeah, we knew that. Well, we, we knew it then. And, and that's a, a, using a pre-existing set of mechanics because, uh, uh Hero uh, Wars, uh, slash quest was no, I think more or worse suited to that than any other good, um, uh, uh, uh general game engine. But my GMing was such as to deliberately try to drive that, uh, character arc, um, for the players. And until we figured out, A, as you say, who is the protagonist, who's the hero, and then B, are they a tragic hero, or is this a, 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 a heroic history a la your Henry V type thing? And once we we determined what it was, everyone played towards that, because that's the sort of crucial thing you have to have at the table, uh, uh, regardless, is player buy-in, and the players have to agree, yeah, we want to do this uh, a Shakespeare game about Shakespeare um, seemed like a, a pretty easy sell. And indeed it was to my group and that's what we played. And, and we had a, a really good time of it, but it was because I had to sort of look as the GM at the story architecture and say, okay, if we're at act three, what has to happen? There has to be a turn. There has to be this, there has to be other thing. We're at act four. Now what happens up oh, here? We are, we're in act five, everybody. This is where, you know, start spending all your points and burning all your things because there's no end after this. There's no epilogue. Uh, that sets you up. If the chorus comes on stage, it's not good. So uh, everyone sort of like really, you know, stepped it up a notch and, and played more intensely and burned more points and uh, had a more uh, a, a climactic, literal, uh, literally uh, a, a bunch of sessions to end up uh, the, the storyline. And that was and, and, and that sort of maybe the answer is to you know, uh, put a little more of the campaign on rails, put a little more of it in direction, even if they're speaking the specific ways in which their characters, um, uh, suffer these slings and arrows. Um, you know, that slings and arrows are coming. You know, this is a tragedy. It's not going to end up well. Uh, maybe someone's a Fordham brass at the end and gets to clean up, but no one gets to bank on that going over the, uh, lip of the, of the falls here. Right. Um, I guess before we go any further, uh, the, we should note that the thing that I would not do is expect the players to extemporize an iambic pentameter. No, only, only one of my players has ever been able to do that. Yeah. yeah that's, um, that's and, a bit and, much. At, at one point we went to a, this was in a different game. It was a world hopping game. We went to a, uh, the, basically the pool Anderson Midsummer's Tempest world where Shakespeare's plays are history. And, uh, because he could talk in iambic pentameter, everyone thought he was a noble. Yeah. <laughs> and, and uh, none of the other characters, uh, th- they would talk and it's like, oh, it's hilarious prose characters. Yeah. <laughs> what fun. You and your retinue of clowns it's, and it's goofs. It's the rude mechanicals. Right. And that was a uh, great fun, but it, it, it was a one scenario's worth of great fun, not a campaign's worth of great fun. Um, so I guess uh, spontaneously, we wound up picking tragedy. But uh, let's briefly cover the other two. Uh, for comedy, 
uh, I would uh, go back to uh, Pantheon and other role-playing games, which you can find used on, on Amazon. And what it does, it's sort of more of a storytelling, uh, sentence-building game, and you get points for introducing uh, familiar tropes of whatever genre story you're telling. And so uh, it, that's where we get to Northrop Fry, who does a brilliant job in Anatomy and Criticism of doing presumably what Aristotle did, but he lot his a, a, a Cerberus ate his homework. So yep. uh, Northrop Fry had to uh, figure out what Aristotle would have said about comedy. And he says that in uh, anatomy of criticism, and he breaks down all the characters and this, and the uh, structure and that in, you know, a Shakespearean comedy is a very tight exercise in hewing to a formula much more so than his tragedies or uh, his uh, history plays. So that, uh, for those, it'd be about scoring points for, you know, here's the Alazon character, the forbidding father. He's introduced. He does this. He does that. The rude mechanical show up. You get points for that. And, and of course, if it doesn't end up in a wedding at the end, nobody gets any points. So you get thrown you out of the yep. gaming hall. Out of the green realm. Right. And then a uh, history is just a, a story about a highly colored character who is making a decision to try and exceed uh, the mortal uh, level pretty much. Uh, usually they're a king, so it's easier for them to make that decision. And it's about what happens. Uh, usually something bad because see history, but it's not bad in the sense of the tragedy, except as Shakespeare uh, weaves that in. So you could look at the history play, uh, Henry IV, as a tragedy of the fall of Falstaff if you wanted to, but you could also see it. Nope. It's a straight up story of the rise of Henry V, uh, Prince Hal to, um, uh, to, to the rightful place of, of heroic person. And you can, you know, look at that in any number of different ways. Uh, but it's really just, you know, events, dear boy events. It's one thing after another, um, leading towards, uh, the natural end point of the story, whether that be the death of the hero or the final elevation and success of the hero, as with, uh, Henry V, which does not in fact end with him dying of dysentery in a useless field in France. It ends with him, um, uh, you know, marrying the queen of, uh, uh the, the daughter of the king of France and getting ready to unify the two kingdoms forever. I would use a Pendragon for that. So you could use the saga yep. rules so that, you know, uh, Jimbo gets to be, uh, this king until that king. And then, uh, and on, and then Sarah gets to take over and, and get to play the next, uh, uh, king or queen. And right, play the whole Wars of the Roses cycle or the whole, uh, John of Gaunt cycle. Right. And since, uh, you know, Shakespeare's already taken the War of the Roses, I would look back the really fun sort of unexplored area of uh, English history that I would be tempted to play with is that uh, part uh, before William the Conqueror, where it's like there's a king of Cornwall and a king of Kent and all these sort of competing guys. And you got your, uh, you know, you're invading uh, Vikings and so forth. And you can have uh, uh, lots of stuff going on there. So it's well, not- that's just Pendragon again. <laughs> you're playing a bunch of, you know, kings of Britain with invading uh, Germanic foreigners. Well, then you've already got all the source books, Ken. Right. Uh, well, I guess I, I guess that's a that's a sell to you somehow. <laughs> Um, I, I was going to say that, uh, if but you're looking you, you would, imp- you would then impose a Pendragon tends to be more about, you know, sort of the Knights and this is more about the politics and the intrigue right. and you would yeah. impose, you know, Shakespearean milestones on the, on the saga in a way that Pendragon doesn't. I mean, maybe it's just because I'm uh, looking at them more intensely now, but I think that, uh, another thing that just cries out to be Shakespearean and it's just a darn shame that he died too early is, uh, the Stuarts, right? If you do the rise and fall of the Stuarts from, uh, uh, James conniving his way into being the heir to Queen Elizabeth, uh, down to the the fall of Charles the first and his execution, uh, the Cromwellian interlude, and then the rise of 
uh, uh, Charles II and a brief, uh, you know, Indian summer for the Stuart dynasty. And then they all come apart again in the glorious revolution. I think that has a great Shakespearean sweep to it. And, and the beginning great parts fun could have Shakespeare in it. Exactly. You could have Shakespeare as a character who sort of introduces the themes for you, uh, like the, the chorus at the beginning of Henry V. Uh, well, I think it's time for us to, uh, uh go and pitch woo to somebody in a balcony. Uh, and uh, the rest of you can listen to a commercial while we do that. And after we get uh, horribly rejected, we'll come back and do another segment. There is, by certain unreliable and maddening account, and now, by your own dreadful experience, a city on the eastern seaboard of the United States in northern Massachusetts. You do not recall seeing it on maps when you were growing up? No one of your acquaintance ever admitted coming from that place. Now you find yourself living within its eerie confines. A city of windowless cyclopean skyscrapers. Of crumbling Baroque buildings. And ruins that must impossibly predate human habitation in this part of the world. Welcome to Cthulhu City. A surreal nightmare supplement for Trail of Cthulhu. From your deceptively kindly mayor of Terror Town, Gareth Ryder Hanrahan. And the cosmically indifferent minds at Pulgrane Press. Evade the watchful eyes of cultish authorities. Pursue intrigue and action down the city's twisted streets. And defy the will of the living gods. In, in Cthulhu, Cthulhu City. The sizzle of oil, the smell of the Milliard effect, and the word Milliard effect welcome us, <laughs> as always, to the Food Hut. And in the Food Hut, we're going to talk about things that go with other things, not food and wine. That would be a different hut, possibly a longer hut, possibly a shorter hut. But we're talking about food and food when we talk about unbeatable ingredient combos, the perfect pairings of the food world Robin, I would like to begin, before we begin our list, but with a shout-out to a book that is, was sort of an eye-opener to me as a cook when it was given to me by a friend for, I think, for Christmas a while back, called The Flavor Bible. Uh, the Flavor Bible, The Essential Guide to Culinary Creativity, based on the wisdom of America's most in imaginative chefs, by Karen Page, not... Daredevil's secretary, a different Karen Page, and Arnor Andrew Dornenberg. And what they did is they went to a bunch of chefs and they said, hey, chef, what goes with uh, tomatoes? And the chef would list everything that goes with tomatoes. And the more chefs that agreed that something went with tomatoes, the bigger the word got on their list. So basil on the list of things that go with tomatoes is in capital in bold capitals. Lemon, it would be not in bold capitals because fewer people would say lemon and tomatoes are a thing. So the bolder and uh, more visible the thing is in the list of ingredients and, and the list goes, you know, it's, it's a ton of different ingredients uh, that they go through. There's like thousands of, uh, of, of various possible things in there. Um, and then, Every so often, they'll have little interview bits with the chefs where they'll say, why, whenever I make blueberries, I always use them as a sauce for pork because to do other would be uncivilized or whatever. And they and they sort of establish that there's like maybe some recipes in there, too, for, for all I know. But what it is really is a thing where you say, I have tarragon. 
what should I put it on? Or I have uh, pork ribs. What should I put on them? Or certainly if you're cooking vegetable side dishes, which you certainly should for health reasons, if for no other reason, um, I have broccoli. What makes it taste better? <laughs> Please, anything. And then you go through and you say, oh, look at this. Um, uh, balsamic vinegar makes broccoli taste better. So let's use that. And by providing you with these sort of go-to combos, if you're just doing something at the last minute, let's say you're, you're heating up a, a, a fish filet or you're, uh, you know, tossing things that you found in the refrigerator together, you can spice them in such ways as to bring out the flavors of those items much better and more reliably than just by saying, I don't know, salt. And it's not that that's not the right answer, but also you want to add positive flavor as well as just emphasizing uh, flavor uh, with salt. Right. And we're mostly looking at ingredients that go together rather than right. an ingredient plus its seasoning. Yeah. Now, I have not got any of my suggestions from a book. Mine are all from my personal experimentation. Yes. Mine are also from cook. personal experience, but uh, I'm shouting out the book because the book will let you um, uh, have the confidence to try this yourself. Right. And uh, obviously it will the, the knowledge base is a lot larger than just relying on uh, one podcast host. Yes. Or even two. Or, or even two. Well, I guess we might both pick the same one. It's true. We might. Right. Uh, so I, I assume that the most, the one you're most likely to uh, duplicate on your list is uh, yam and edamame. I was not going to duplicate that. Tell us about yam and edamame, Robin. So uh, the basic way to do this is in a roast. And so uh, you are, of course, uh, peeling up your uh, your yam, your sweet potato, as it may be known as. Uh, the sweet potato is one of those uh, things like the turnip that engenders some ingredient confusion because different things can be labeled as a, a sweet potato. But we're talking about the, uh, the bright orange uh, yam, uh, which is a delicious... Uh, sweet, uh, uh, Swedish root vegetable, although I prefer to season it in ways that work against its inherent sweetness. So you're not going to find the sort of classic Thanksgiving, uh, yams, yams and brown the, sugar, with brown sugar or marshmallow or any of that in my, in my kitchen. And again, we're going to try, we're not going to try and do like super, like everyone knows bacon and eggs go together. We don't need to tell you that right. we're trying to move past that and cheese and almost anything else. That's, right. That's a no brainer. Um, but uh, if you put them in uh, a uh, an open roast pan with some olive oil and then uh, and we're using shelled edamame for this, of course, and uh, <laughs> this is an instance where the edamame you want your fresh uh, yam, but your edamame can be out of the freezer and you uh, just uh, pop them in the microwave for a few minutes to make sure they're um, cooked. That's probably strictly unnecessary, but uh, then you put them in with say uh, uh, onion and some garlic in with the uh, uh, yams and the uh, edamame get nice and uh, they get a little toasted bit on their uh, underside as they uh, cook in the oil and you uh, cook them away at uh, probably a high heat like about 425 until you get a nice crispy outer surface on your yams and you flip them around a couple of times so that you get uh, more than one crispy surface per little uh, cubelet of yam and uh, but I would also put that uh, those ingredients together in a uh, a pressure cooker uh, stew with those two things. And uh, it's just something that uh, the sort of uh, the crispness and the sort of sharp uh, green soyness of the edamame uh, goes really well with the sweetness of the yam. 
Uh, my example of uh, uh, a couple of ingredients that go super well together is uh, salmon and cannellini beans. And that is uh, because uh, salmon, especially when cooked to, say, medium rare, which you should, assuming you didn't buy terrible salmon, uh, has a buttery consistency. Cannellini beans, when cooked, ideally maybe with a little olive oil, maybe a little uh, shallot, uh, and maybe a little salt, uh, render themselves into a lovely creamy consistency. And so you get a buttery and a creamy texture with the flavors of salmon and cannellini beans. And so that works on sort of all four levels because first of all, uh, the beans, uh, back up the salmon's, um, uh, proteinness, uh, like beans and, and meat do always, but, uh, the specific textures blend together to make a super great mouthfeel. And, uh, it's not like you're having any shortage of super great mouthfeel if you're eating salmon, but this lets you extend the super greatness of your mouthfeel to the side dish, which you can't always do. Right. Another reason to do that at home is that almost no restaurants are good at cooking salmon, weirdly. Right. Yes. It's very weird. They all overcook it. And I don't know if that's the, 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 the government making them do it or just people are dumb. But yeah, it's like you could only get, which in many places, I guess you can, you could only get uh, hamburgers done uh, uh, medium well. You know, why would you do that? Salmon is so great, medium rare or uh, or even rare. Uh, yeah, it uh, well, that this risks the uh, Robin Rant Hut. So uh, instead, let's uh, move on to my next choice, which is uh, dried cranberry and quinoa. Mm. So uh, whether you're doing it in like a morning uh, porridge uh, where you uh, have this sort of little bit of uh, your cranberry as your tribute uh, to sweetness, plus you've got a little bit of acidity in there, and that uh, adds a flavor that uh, goes with the, the sort of the uh, nutty sort of post-crunchiness of, of quinoa. Uh, the trick with quinoa is make sure that you wash it thoroughly before you uh, uh, cook it, and uh, I would also advise to always eat quinoa cold. Absolutely fresh cooked quinoa has a bit of a uh, foot smell to it. Uh, and I think that's what puts people like you, Ken, who dislike quinoa, uh, off of the that, quinoa. That it, it could be the foot smell. It could be the texture. It could be the, the, the it could be any number of things. But yeah, the foot smell is up there. Well, you, you get rid of that if you, uh, put it away cold and bring it out later. And also, uh, <laughs> if you, uh, want to do a salad, uh, with, uh, a dried cranberry and, uh, sort of a, a vinaigrette sauce and a few other, uh, uh, little things as well, perhaps some caramelized onions uh, for a more savory thing. Uh, that's also delish. Um, I will uh, toss in uh, coffee and pork and not just drinking coffee and eating pork, although that's lovely, as anyone who's had bacon at a diner can tell you. But uh, I don't know how many people uh, listening have had red eye gravy, which is uh, made out of ham drippings and coffee, but it's magnificent. Also, you can use coffee as a rub on roast pork, especially on something like ribs or shoulder, where the pork is super moist and juicy and is just going to be pouring rendered fat out the whole time anyway uh that will uh the the sweetness of the natural sweetness of pork and the natural bitterness of coffee come together and create a really interesting flavor combination some people like to blend it up with with cocoa powder some people like to blend it up with other things uh obviously you'll probably want some salt just to encourage the rendering process but uh Coffee rubbed pork um, lets you have a uh, a pretty great taste sensation. And again, pursue red eye gravy. Sheila does not like my red eye gravy, uh, single tear dripping down my face. So I 
can't pursue red eye gravy, but I encourage those of you with uh, more broad minded uh, uh, wife uh, palates or husband palates to try it. Next up is asparagus. Uh, asparagus is a very strong flavor for the vegetable kingdom. It's often paired with something. Again, we mentioned cheese earlier, but again, that's that's a no brainer, right? Um, what I think is more interesting is to uh, uh, saute uh, asparagus, uh, and I'll cut it up into little bits. Uh, in order to allow the uh, sun-dried tomatoes that I put in with it and then are allowed to sort of juice up and suck up the oil in the pan. And so that uh, sharp saltiness of the uh, and acidity of the uh, sun-dried tomato makes a great, also very strong flavor to contrast with the asparagus because asparagus is so powerful that uh, you need, uh, you know, you don't want to uh, team up between... Uh, Superman and Metallo. You want Superman and Batman. Mm -hmm. uh, so you need uh, two uh, equally strong opposed uh, flavors to have a good uh, combo with asparagus. On the uh, topic of two strong uh, flavors, uh, pastrami and corned beef, both great as sandwiches. Together, a better sandwich than either one alone. That's uh, that's pretty much a no-brainer. There's no way to get it wrong um, uh, except to not do it. So rush out to your deli, get some pastrami, get some corned beef. Uh, re refer to previous podcast for sandwich for sandwich architecture advice. Make a pastrami and corned beef sandwich. Thank me later. We've been mentioning a lot of uh, bitter and sweet combinations. Uh, next up is the apple with parsnip. Um, putting a, an apple in a, a root vegetable stew of any kind is uh, usually a, a great choice. As I mentioned earlier, uh, put it in your pressure cooker vegetable stew and the apple just uh, basically kind of explodes and, yeah. and it becomes a sauce, basically. It becomes an apple reduction. Uh, but uh, parsnip in particular, uh, when it first starts to cook, it's a little sharp and bitter, but if you either roast it or uh, pressure cook it long enough, it too becomes sweet. And the uh, particular sweetness of those two things, I think, uh, mixes really well. Uh, parsnip is delicious either in uh, a sort of a stew situation or if you, uh, again, roast it in a roast pan and olive oil and get a nice crispy surface on that. And parsnip is a very underrated utility infielder of the vegetable world, I think. I don't think people know how good parsnips are. Parsnips and carrots is another great combo, by the way. Yeah. If you are someone who is maybe don't want the overwhelming flavor of carrots in your, in your beef stew, you're, you, you think maybe that's a little too carroty, cut it with parsnip and you will nail it and you'll add, um, I, I don't, it's not even a depth, but it's sort of a, an airiness that the parsnip brings that's, that's sort of its own kind of flavor and makes the beef stew, uh, open out a little bit. So I would say, if you've got an ingredient uh, list that seems to have too many carrots, toss in a parsnip instead of one of the carrots and see what happens. Yeah, parsnip is really great with beef. I think one of the things that discourages people with, with the parsnip is that it goes bad uh, pretty quickly in your crisper if you don't put it in a vegetable bag. Yeah. And it's a bit of a problem with carrots, but a uh, a parsnip will turn limp immediately uh, unless you store it in a, in a vegetable bag, which is just a plastic bag that you can buy at the supermarket along with your Ziploc bags that has little perforations in it, and that will uh, preserve its lifespan. Now, I'm going to run through some sort of... Uh Th these are things that are probably standard, but I, uh, every now and again, I run into people who don't know about standards, but obviously, uh, if you've never had lemon and dill soup, um, please 
rush out and do that. It's magnificent. Mango and curry. Again, you have to have gone to exactly two Indian restaurants before you discover that it works really well, but it works well even if you, you know, make it at home with big chunks of mango and, and fresh, delicious curry. You can make a mango salsa that basically goes onto your Indian food uh, instead of mango chutney, and it becomes super great uh, as well because the fundamental flavors of mango and curry work. And of course, peanut butter and sriracha is just the poor man's pod thai. Um, so if you don't have pod thai sauce, but you've got peanut butter and you've got sriracha, you can basically make pod thai at home, uh, with those. So those are delicious, uh, flavor combos that again, a little bit standard, a little bit normal, but every now and again, someone comes up to you and you discover that they've, you know, I don't know, never seen Indiana Jones. So who can know what's, uh, what's standard out there in the crazy world now? Uh, yeah. And that's one of the, the things about, uh, eating that can turn into cooking is, uh, you know, when you're eating something uh, new or unfamiliar, uh, note to yourself what the flavors are and how they combine, and then think of how they uh, could go with other things that are not necessarily confined to the traditions of that uh, cuisine, which sounds like a concluding note. So It does. Uh, so while the rest of you uh, go to the refrigerator uh, for some leftovers, while listening to this commercial, uh, we will prepare for whatever lies beyond it. Years ago, the terrorist agents of Havoc triggered a nuclear nightmare that devastated the Northern Hemisphere. Patiently in scattered colonies deep underground, survivors have been waiting for the radiation to ebb. That day has come, but the real battle for survival has only just begun. In Freeway Warrior 1 Highway Holocaust, you are Cal Phoenix, the Freeway Warrior, champion and protector of Dallas Colony 1. Murderous Havoc bikers hunt your fragile convoy as it crosses the wastelands of Texas. Defending your people and reaching your destination intact requires all the wit and courage you can muster. Highway Holocaust, an exclusive hardcover with dust jacket and book ribbons, is the first choose-your-own-adventure game book in Joe Deaver's post-apocalyptic Freeway Warrior series. From the fine folks at Phoenix, now available from Modifius. Form a delicious combo with such Patreon backers as John Buckley, Daniel Callahan, Brian Thomas, Andrew Carey, and Ash Jackson is the Scrollbard. Hey, uh, once more, it is Ken and or Robin talk to someone else. And once more, you're rocketing back in time to our recording a bunch of interviews on the day before Gen Con in the Embassy Suites Hotel where they're engaged in major construction work. So uh, if you hear... Because that makes sense. Yes. So if you hear uh, banging and crashing in the middle of this uh, uh, interview, the Embassy Suites apologizes to you. Right. We're uh, not doing a hilarious physical comedy bit you can't see. It's more of a conceptual bit in which we renovate a hotel during the busiest tourist week it's ever going to see. Right. But we are delighted to have with us uh, Ruth Tillman, uh, a uh, writer and game designer, Ruth Tillman. Uh, and uh, let us start by talking about Cthulhu Confidential, which uh, you uh, worked on with Chris Spivey and I. And uh, tell us about your character, Ruth. That's a question nobody's ever asked me before, Robin. 
Um, I'm writing the character of Vivian Sinclair. She is the player character that comes um, as one of the three uh, PCs that comes along with the Cthulhu Confidential set. She is a 1930s investigative journalist. She is driven to find the truth, uh, no matter what the physical, psychological, or at times moral cost. And uh, she exists in the uh, Cthulhu Confidential world, which is our sort of blending of uh, noir detection and hard-boiled detective uh, fiction and uh, the Cthulhu mythos. So how did you find the intersection between those two things when creating the uh, uh, scenario that appears in the book? So when working on Vivian Sinclair, what I focused on very much was catching myself up on the noir genre, which I'd been familiar with as sort of a more casual reader, but I really put myself in that headspace for about a year, which is a really bad place to put your your headspace (laughs) for a year. Um, And then essentially tried to see what it would be like to have someone coming from that world, someone who is at least on the fringes of the noir headspace intersect with the world of cosmic horror, which is the the aspect of Lovecraft that I find the most compelling. Uh, not necessarily the monsters, but the pure the pure cosmic horror and the discovery of that not only is the world dark and corrupt and all these other things that maybe, yes, as an investigative journalist in New York City in the 1930s, you would have cottoned on to, but... It's also more horrifying than you'd ever imagined. And part of the assignment is also to write about New York in the 30s and add Lovecraft elements to it. So what uh, was the most surprising, interesting weirdness about New York that you discovered while you were working on this? Well, I have to give a major shout-out to the Works Progress Administration, um, who in 1939 actually put together an enormous guide to New York City. Uh, That was pretty fantastic. Um, um, and explain a bit oh, what the yes. WPA is. The WPA was a Depression-era project which hired writers to create a, essentially a guide for tourists to New York City. It was extraordinarily thorough. It, I mean, I think it's around 1,000 pages of material. Mm-hmm. And it's set in all five, all five boroughs. Um, they hired a lot of writers of color as well as write, white writers to come out and really comb through the city. So it's a, a fascinating snapshot and it's set at the end of the 30s but technically some a lot of the stuff still applies to the 30s and I would just look up um, look up the dates in terms of what I found that was the most interesting or compelling if you'd like I can mansplain the federal writers project to you while you think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, no that's okay Ken Thanks. all right just just making the off <laughs> putting it out there uh, well, let me Sorry. let me go at this another <laughs> yeah. way. So, and you've also been involved in working uh, as one of the writers on Harlem Unbound for Chris yeah. Spivey. Yes. Uh, maybe you could tell us a bit about uh, that and your involvement in it. Yes. So Chris and I um, got to know each other because Robin had asked both of us to collaborate with him on the Cthulhu Confidential Project, and we actually were living in the same town at the time, although I was about to move. So we went out, talked about all our hopes and dreams, and Chris has a lot of big hopes and dreams, which is very exciting. Um, And so for the Harlem Unbound project, he approached me because I'd been writing about New York City for Cthulhu Confidential and said, well, can you take Harlem and just go deeper? And one of the things I really liked in researching Harlem was there, there is this amazing and delightful nightclub app 
uh, map rather. I say app. So that's how it. That's how my brain thinks about it. But it was. It was from the nineteen thirties. It was shockingly advanced. It was. It really. <laughs> it, it ran on a Memex machine. But it, there was this, this handout that people could take, and it it gave you guides to all the different clubs and dancing spots. And one of the things that I, I really liked about it was there were all these little tiny notes. And there's this one, and I, I can't remember off the top of my head who it says to ask for, but it just says, ask for name. And I, just, I have no idea what that means. And it was just a wonderful little open tidbit. And so, you know, I put that in there. Um, you know, come here. And I ask wrote, for Leon. Right, I wrote a little hook, like, come here, ask for, like, you know, you've only heard the rumors. Come here, ask for Leon. Like, that's just a scenario opener right there. You could do almost anything with it. Oh, also that there was this um, this, yeah, this tree, but tell us about the tree. Tell us about the tree. I would have to. But that's, that's so withholding of you. Oh, well, yeah. there's a tree, but but you'll have to buy the scenario to find out about it. <laughs> ah, yeah, the, the tree material is in Harlem Unbound, but no. Ruth has Ruth has gotten so much so much savvier about this business in the, just a few years that we've seen her uh, work on it. It's the the tree of hope from the Harlem Renaissance, and. Um, Everyone was supposed to come by and touch it before you did things. And so one of the conceptions I came up with was that the Tree of Hope, which all these, um, all of these amazing stars of the Harlem Renaissance, particularly performers, would come by and symbolically touch before going to perform in some club or on some stage. And I, well, what, what is the tree? What, what is this tree? Like, is it going to demand sacrifice? Like, wh- how long has it been Draining in the city? Draining off some of their humanity, like right. nuns. Like, like, what is it? What is it doing? And what is it giving back in return? Or yeah, so I, I is it making a contract with the Lamia. I don't know. And so the, the tree was unfortunately cut down because it started disrupting the sidewalk. Had too much hope. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> the tree of hope yeah. got a little it's, hopeful. It's, as if you were wondering if there was a metaphor involved <laughs> in the hope. tree of hope, then they cut it down in right. Harlem. Yeah. They, they, did, they have planted a new one, though, and given it a little and plaque And it's just and as good. <laughs> Slightly farther back from the sidewalk. And yeah, so there's no mystery involved into why they had to cut down and replace the tree of hope in, in Harlem. Speaking of trees... Uh, the thing that you uh, worked on that is here at Gen Con is Out of the Woods. Uh, and uh, tell us about uh, your involvement in that. Yes, I'm really excited to see this because this was um, something that I wrote years ago when I, I have a terrible habit and I did it again this year. So we'll see if, you know, four years down the line or something, this happens again. But I said, oh, yeah, no, you know what? Um, I don't want one of your pregens, Kat. Don't give me one of your pregens. I'll write something. And so I ran it, and it was actually pretty popular, and people liked it. And so I started running it at local cons and stuff, and it came around, and they said, why don't you just pitch it to us as, a, as an actual scenario? So I sent them 10,000 words, and I asked for 20. And, you know, that's always the kind of thing you want to hear. Um, Sometimes. But, <laughs> it's true. It's really, Other times, not so much. <laughs> it, yeah, it depends on what else you have in your life right yeah. now. Yeah. Right. Um, but it's uh, so it's set in the 1930s in Alabama, which was an interesting sort of conception to write about. It's something that could, in theory, work in with um, Bookhounds of London, because at the center of it is this occult tome and its retrieval. But it also fits what's very much I've realized um, my mythos aesthetic, because uh, that's the same. The thing that I did this year again is also set out in a woods. It's the uh, the the woodsy 
the, the, the strange going out into the woods and encountering your mystery. But I spent a lot of time actually in woods as well, a kid. Lovecraft identifies that as the birth of American supernaturalism, as the existence of that forest. Yeah. So you are in a proud tradition of Lovecraft and Nathaniel Hawthorne. So don't feel bad that you're doing it. It's just four years I, at, a, at, a, at a jump is all. <laughs> It's just that I don't know if they're going to make Out of the Woods 2. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the great thing about uh, the scenarios is that there's lots of different ways into them. This is true. So the, yes. the, you're retrieving a tome in rural Alabama. Uh, is there something about rural Alabama in the 1930s? Uh, one assumes there's a WPA guide to Alabama as well, just like there is to most of the country. Uh, there is, although I didn't consult it as much for this. I actually used some, um, I'm a librarian, and I was fortunate enough to use some fellow uh, librarians and archivists in Alabama, including one who runs Trail and ran it for his characters. Fantastic. As a, uh, as a sounding board to say, okay, does this sound like Alabama to y'all? Um, By the way, pro tip, uh, do not try to out-research Ruth. <laughs> I, I get very excited most, about research. Most people I can do that to. <laughs> Ruth, I cannot. One of my most exciting things in writing this was I, I was conceptualizing what it would be like to drive from Birmingham, which is where your players would arrive at the beginning, to this remote location that I picked. And I said, well, you go about this many miles on a regular road and this many miles on a dirt road. And I talked about, you know, the Alabama um, the Alabama uh, dirt, and I totally got that wrong. So the Alabama, the Bamans were like, "What? No, it's it's this color. It'll Fixed stick to your dirt." Yeah, right. Get the dirt right, Ruth. But what I got right was uh, I absolutely estimated where the road would be correct, and where it would be gravel, and where it would be dirt. And I found a map that had been digitized by an archive down in Alabama of that road of that that route in that period and it like it, it had those helpful markers because if you're driving you really need to know if the road you're turning onto is actually going to be you know rutted and dirty especially and, if you're driving a car with a 1920s transmission mm -hmm. so it was really suspension it was really exciting for me to put all of that local color into writing the scenario um, so for those who are not paying attention ruth has just low-key confessed to having a time machine <laughs> I'm, I'm saying a psychic knowledge of Alabama oh, yeah. roads psychic, for reasons like, that I... Psychic knowledge is not a real thing, Ruth. It's not like <laughs> time machines. That's science. <laughs> Look, I'm just saying maybe Ken's time machine, you know, will pick me up in the future and take me back to Alabama. That'd be great. It's a date. We'll All do right. it. So, uh... If, if Ken is saying that you can out-research him, our listeners, have, are, their ears have uh, pricked up, and they want to know... They are shocked. Uh, They're the, reeling back on their heels. Yeah. So that other this than This is being, the I am not left-handed moment of this podcast. Right. So other than being a librarian, which is a long process that you can look up on the internet how to become one, um, <laughs> how uh, do you approach uh, research, and how do you go from... Like, how much of your conceptualizing is... I. Uh, have a concept for an adventure, what do I need to learn about it versus I've learned this cool thing, how do I turn it into an adventure? What does the uh, process work for you? Um, so there's a couple of ways that I go about things. One is when I actually get into the thing and have decided what I'm doing, then I do a combo of things. One of them is just um, having friends who are interested in the same kinds of things as you. Because I think I told Ken that I was setting the thing in New York City. And after he said, well, why not Chicago? And you know, having moved to the Midwest in the middle of writing this, I agree with you. Why not Chicago? Why not but Chicago? I'm leaving the Midwest again, so, you know, oh well. State Chicago. College is pretty Midwestern for an, East, for an original 13. <laughs> um... But, but not Midwestern enough. I know, it's not Chicago. But anyway, Ken said, oh, well, of course, you'll be using the WPA guide. And I was like, 
yes. <laughs> <laughs> I hadn't encountered that yet, but yes, of course. Um, on the other hand, what I do is I look around for things that um, are digitized. I work in digital libraries, and so when I think of materials from these eras, and particularly anything pre-1923, uh, most things that are produced by the federal government and a fair number that are produced by state governments, you already have the right to digitize them and put them online. Additionally, universities, uh, state, uh, public, rather, uh, federal universities, or um, certain kinds of public universities, not all public universities, have the rights to put stuff online and, and just do a, ta a well, well you caught us takedown. Um, I, I've been working at a That's university. The name of it. Yes, yes I've been working at a university which has that legal dragon. deep pockets and right. is like we're not doing that. Yeah. But uh, um, and so looking then around for digitized materials, there's a few big aggregators like um, archive.org, the Digital Public Library of America (DPLA). Um, if you're looking for European stuff, Europeana can sometimes have things. And so like just uh, for my con research scenario. I, I really love infrastructure. And so the, the basic setting of my con is um, in the Catskills Aqueduct, upstate New York. It was constructed in the 19-teens, so it's set a bit, a bit uh, earlier than your, your average time. And so I was looking at the records of the New York Board of Water Commissioners, because I could because the New York Public Library had digitized some of those and put them online. Right, so this is a convention scenario. Yes, it's just a convention scenario at this point. Okay, so did you start from, I want to have a horror scenario about aqueducts, or uh, like what, did you start <laughs> like with the research and move um, to the adventure, or did you start with an adventurous seed and then move to, oh, well, Rob, obviously Robin, I need to learn Robin's not really research woke, Ruth. You just have to forgive him. <laughs> so I think, I think what had happened was I had encountered the uh, magnitude and wonder. I, so I, I like cosmic horror because it invokes my sense of wonder and horror. And... Um, Infrastructure in America, the really good stuff, invokes that same sense of wonder. And so I had hit that and, with... And often horror. Right. And sometimes horror um, with the Catskills Aqueduct. And so I, I, I know the entire history of the New York City water tunnels. It's, it's wonderful and terrifying. I, I can tell you amazing stories. Right. But anyway, um, and look for those stories in the supplements to Vivian Sinclair. We've right. got some stuff about sand hogs in one of them. It's pretty fun. But anyway, I, I saw this and I said, you know what, I'm not, I, like, I'm, I want to write something outside of New York City. When were these built? Like, what was happening? Where was the area? And then sort of went from there and started with, like, what kinds of horror could affect a group of people that you just put out, like, bring up people from the city, put them out in a camp in the wilderness, and weird stuff starts right. to happen. Right, so it was, it was research first, yeah. then to concept. Right, and it was more like that the spike of thing hit me, and then I started saying, hmm. And then back around with the confirmatory research. Right. Once you've had the high concept that, oh, bad doings at the aqueduct, then you're like, now I need to know the names of everyone involved in the aqueduct and were any of them Freemasons and the whole nine yards, <laughs> right. right? And I haven't, like, I didn't hit on anything too exciting or fun, so, you know, most of my stuff is made up. But I did find, like, that small town where I was setting this, um, the particular reservoir that never, that never existed. Um, I found this person who'd put online photographs of that town a couple years beforehand. Score. So, uh, with uh, so there are going to be more uh, Cthulhu Confidential Adventures for all three of the characters, and so you, uh, as you're coming up with the concepts for the follow-ups, you have something already in place. You have Viv, you have New York City, mm -hmm. and now your task is to uh, generate more interesting ideas that people will want to play with that character. So, what is your 
uh, process there in building on something uh, where you've got some of the elements in place and now you have to uh, replicate with variations the basic structure that you've established already. So one of the things that I looked for were uh, sort of major historical events or transitions in the life of the city. Um, I took some of my inspiration for this straight up from movies. And um, I, so one of the, one example would be the uh, mayoral transition between Jimmy Walker and Fiorella LaGuardia and the, the guy in the middle who was essentially a, more of a Tammany puppet than, Jim, than Jimmy Walker. So Jimmy Walker was a Tammany mayor, very popular, very good looking, uh, very scandalous, runs away to Europe with a showgirl level of... Um, of awesome. <laughs> of, of, I was going to say of resigning from office yeah. to avoid prosecution. But yes. So Tammany throws in a guy in the middle. So I was like, what kind of corrupt contract jobs for one of these things? I just said, you know, what kind of corrupt contract jobs might have happened during this era where you've got this guy who literally said to reporters, I'm not sure yet what I'm supporting. They haven't told me. <laughs> so I started looking around at what was going on at the time and sort of worked from there to say, okay. And so that was a focus on corruption and then sort of bringing in mythos elements. And right, such. and if we told you what that mythos element was, we'd be telling. Because, right. of course, therein lies the mystery. And the excitement. Right. And uh, it is uh, sadly not exciting. Uh, and Not well, really mysterious. Not particularly mysterious that so we have to wrap up this segment. So thank you very much, Ruth, for uh, dropping by. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. When I think Delta Green, Arc Dream's classic and newly revived role-playing game of rogue intelligence operatives against the Cthulhu Mythos, I think paranoia, go-bags, Guns. And opera. Uh, say what now? Delta Green, A Night at the Opera. Six terrifying scenarios for Delta Green, the role-playing game. Reverberations. Viscid. Music from a darkened room. Extremophilia. The Star Chamber. And Observer Effect. Written by Dennis Detwiller, Shane Ivey, and Greg Stoltze, these scenarios have been available only in PDF and in standalone paperback modules. Get them in a full-color hardback to match your agent's handbook and the upcoming Handler's Guide. Delta Green, A Night at the Opera is available to pre-order at shop.arcdream.com. It ain't over till the fat lady reveals herself as a servitor of Yagalanak. It's time once more to uh, barge our way uh, into Ken's book collection and see if there's a, a yawning stack of books that he's yet to file away. And Oh, look! The books that you got at the Strand in uh, in NYC, I take it? Yes, the Strand Bookstore in New York City, uh, down in uh, Manhattan. I guess it's not Midtown. It's sort of, you know, around 4th Avenue. Uh, Strand Bookstore boasting 18 miles of shelves. When I first went there in 1999, it was uh, truly glorious. It was a eye-opening experience for me. Uh, the basement at that time, what they call Strand Underground, was... Every magazine, every newspaper, every publisher in New York City would take all of the review copies and trade copies and swag copies they got from anything and sell them to the Strand. And so the Strand had, in that basement, probably of those 18 miles, 5 miles of books, 
that were half price copies of brand new books, and in some cases, books that had not even been published yet. It was the Library of Congress, but you could buy everything in half off. But you could buy everything in half off, and it was sheerly astonishing in its, in its beauty. Now, in the same way that Foils has uh, angrily and with much resentment organized their books into sections, and thank God, speaking as a guy who's only at Foils once a year. And, and is only interested in certain sections. Right. Uh, the Strand has also done the same thing. So now there is a wall in the underground that is labeled University Presses, where you can still have the excitement of uh, sieving an entire wall of books, hoping against hope that any one of them is a useful topic. But what that does mean is that when you do discover a book on a topic that is not immediately normally one of your topics, say business history or whatever, that you actually want, then it's right there and it's half price and it's a beautiful exciting uh, browsing dream as opposed to the sort of, I know that there will be gazelle in this pond. I will hunt the gazelle. Now I have a gazelle. You, you don't ever get a chance to be surprised with um, uh, um, a, a giant clam or a, or a, or a rutabaga or whatever that you didn't know you wanted, but then you found and you have it. Right. Well, the first gazelle in our box of gazelles is energy and civilization, a history by Vaslav Smil. And that is a classic example of the University Press bookshelf doing what it's supposed to do. Vaslav Smil wrote a book um, in, I want to say, 1993-ish that was called Energy in World History. And it came out, and uh, my buddy uh, Craig Newmeyer, my co-author on the Alternate Earths books, bought it and held it over me like a precious grail uh, because <laughs> it immediately went out of print and costs hundreds of dollars on the aftermarket and you couldn't get it. And he would say, oh, well, you probably haven't read Smeal. That's your problem. Um, you don't understand this. And then he would drop a bon mot from Smeal on me and I would be defeated because I couldn't come back and say, well, you know, Smeal also says because I hadn't read it. So he was nice enough to loan it to me when I wrote GURPS Infinite Worlds, and it did, in fact, be as magical and wonderful as I thought. And now, Vaslav Smil has expanded and rewritten it as Energy and Civilization, A History. Uh, it came out this year from the good people at MIT Press. It was on the university shelves, and I saw Energy and Civilization, Vaslav Smil, and uh, my heart leapt and up. And finally, you had your revenge against your collaborator. Exactly. Because now I, I am king of the cats. Um, and uh, guess what? It's a history of energy and civilization with numbers and graphs and all manner of useful uh, facts. It is not, I, I want to say it's probably a good thing if you're just sort of curious about energy and civilization, but Smeal pretty much assumes that you know about civilization and he's going to plug energy into it. But a lot of it is going to be, if you're specifically interested in a topic, Smeal will cover it, but then he'll expect you to go and follow the bibliography. It's very much an academic book, even if it's a academic sort of primer and overview and um uh, smeal is great the book is great it's got great stuff in it um and i'm super happy to have found it at strand uh well the, the next one has hate in the title so we're going up the emotional register to belzoni the giant archaeologists love to hate by ivor noel hume uh why do archaeologists hate belzoni um they hate him because he was on the site of abu simbel and they weren't in 18 18 or whenever it was. And in order to get into an Egyptian tomb or pyramid, he would use black powder because that's how you blow doors off things. I mean, stands to reason. Yep. And archaeologists feel that that 
redounds badly on their profession. Yeah. <laughs> and most current archaeologists uh, are unhappy with the methods of past archaeologists. But uh, John Battista Belzoni was a miraculous creature. He was a giant, as it says. He was um, like seven feet tall or something like that. Eight feet tall, maybe. Um, he's performed as a strong man in circuses. That was his gig. Um, he would carry dwarves around on his back. So he would carry like 10 dwarves in an iron cage around on his back. Um, he was also a hydraulic engineer in his spare time. And when hydraulicing didn't work out, uh, he followed the circus to Egypt, where the circus impresario was also the British consul in Egypt. And he said, well, you're very strong and obviously will do anything for a nickel. Why don't you go down to these Egyptian tombs and see what you can find out? And because he had an engineering mind, he made sure to sketch everything. And, and he really is sort of the first proper archaeologist, modular the occasional black powder charge, to hit a lot of these sites, and I do mean hit, uh, in <laughs> Egypt. And he is he, he's quite a character, just a m- magnificently fascinating person. I have some of his books, uh, as a matter of fact, his the, the sort of the modern republications of his works, um, and I think he's terrific. And so, a new biography of him is great news anyway. If you're familiar, people might be familiar with my old live journal account, the avatar on my live journal account is the head of Belzoni. So that is how much I've liked Belzoni and how long I've done it. Uh, here's a book that uh, Dex Raymond of Cthulhu Confidential fame uh, might uh, want to uh, check out and have inform his uh, upcoming adventures. Hollywood Spies, the Uncover Surveillance of Nazis in Los Angeles. And the book is by Laura B. Rosenzweig. And this is another one from the uh, University Press shelf. It's from New York University Press. And apparently, the film industry heard about these Nazis. Most of the film industry at that point was run by Jewish movie producers, and they didn't like the Nazis. They thought the Nazis were bad news, and they knew from J. Edgar Hoover and other uh, uh, government officials that the Nazis were at work subverting our freedoms, and they said, well, we're very, very rich and used to hiring private detectives for all manner of reasons, many of them that don't bear scrutiny. Why don't we hire them to find the Nazis? And so they did. So again, we talked, um, uh, we've talked before about the sort of freelance, uh, espionage done by the British government, uh, as their various offices would establish, um, uh, their own, uh, spy agencies. In America, we privatized that stuff. So Hollywood, uh, producers funded a effort to find and disrupt the Nazi movement in Los Angeles in the thirties. And if that does not say trail of Cthulhu scenarios, I don't know what does. Yeah. I guess, uh, Louis B. Mayer or Harry Cohn will hire Dex Raymond uh, for his next case. Uh, next up we have playboys and Mayfair men, crime, class, masculinity, and fascism in 1930s London. Uh, Hey, fascism and, uh, class and, uh, looking smart. They're all coming back. What can we learn about this in the 1930s in London? Uh, the book is by Angus McLaren. Uh, we learned, This is one of those true crime stories that also wants to talk about the whole uh, milieu, uh, as many true crime stories do, but the specific true crime is that elite uh, English lads from uh, elite public schools in their 20s, December 37, ambush a uh, traveling salesman for the Cartier jewelry firm. They beat the living hell out of him and steal eight rings uh, from his sample case. This becomes a giant deal. And because they are 
English public schoolmen. They are terrible at covering their tracks and they get arrested. And so there is a sensational trial um, as the entire British establishment tries to say, look over there about literally everything and being a loose, young, rich Britishers. They were uh, perhaps in uh, cahoots with the various members of the Cliveden set, the uh, pro fascist, if not actively fascist part of uh, the British uh, status quo. Um, and if they're not, I'll wager that Angus McLaren is going to break a leg trying to prove that they were, which is almost as good for our purposes. Uh, I haven't read the book, although it's not really long. It is, uh, it looks fairly, uh, rich and dense, but again, jewel robbery, 1937, London, possible Nazis, definite dilettantes. We're, we're again looking at Trail of Cthulhu. And if you can, you could simply take this book, swap it out for, a guy traveling with a, um, a bunch of rare books that he's going to sell to the player characters, and you have yourself a bookhounds uh, story. Well, uh, there's eight uh, keywords in that title, and none of them are jewel or robbery. So uh, somebody's marketing department, I think, messed up a bit. Uh, so let's move on to The London Cage, The Secret History of Britain's World War II Interrogation Center by Helen Fry. Uh, the London Cage was one of nine cages which were basically black sites that in World War II, the um, uh, British would pop uh, prisoners and the prisoners might be German POWs. They might be local uh, uh, British um, uh, fascists who needed to be sweated and there it might be German uh, spies. Whoever they needed to grab that had super information worth getting would be taken to one of these black sites. And this specific black site is uh, the London Cage in Kensington Palace Gardens. So it's not even a bad neighborhood that they put their uh, little um, uh, uh, British Gitmo in. And uh, then this is what happened there. And it will no doubt ask a lot of questions like, is it okay to torture Nazis um, and uh, other wonderful things? And at the very least, it will provide ample um, uh, documentation of uh, fun stuff that we can learn about the Nazis and uh, about the British MI9, which was the specific group that was in charge of these interrogations in these prisons. And since there is a picture of Ian Fleming in the book, I assume it will also draw us into the larger counter-Nazi special operations uh, work that Fleming was doing uh, over at the Navy. Still in similar territory, we have Destination Casablanca, Exile, Espionage, and the Battle for North Africa in World War II by Meredith Hindley. And what I'm learning here is that if you book this about World War II, you've got to have that at least in the subtitle uh, to, to make it absolutely clear to the World War II buff that they have to buy this book. Right. It's Casablanca, the history book. Uh, you, you, you read about, um, uh, good old Casablanca. You see the movie Casablanca. And yes, indeed, it was a nest of spies. There were, in fact, vultures, vultures everywhere. And, um, this book, uh, purports to describe, and one hopes it describes, given how thick it is, the operation by which it basically was handed over completely intact to the Allies at, during Operation Torch that um, American and French and British agents of influence had gone into the city and said, look, here comes the army. Do you really want to die for Vichy France dying for the Nazis? Or would you rather keep making money uh, because everyone who's going to land has been paid? Um, and Casablanca, sure enough, went over to the Allies without firing much of a shot. And Operation Torch was off to a great start. There is a great deal of meat in Allied covert operations in North Africa, Casablanca, Algeria, um, the murder of Al Admiral Darlan. There's lots of stuff going on in that North Africa era that is sort of 
skipped over, I think, because people are like eager to get to the main show and go after the Nazis. But given that it is, you know, the Barbary Coast, given that it has got uh, the um, exotic air of the Orient about it, I think that there is some very strong gaming potential to be had in Casablanca in 1942 and uh, possibly even uh, in 1941 and 1943. So uh, is the blurb, read this and no longer be misinformed about Casablanca? I think the blurb is um, no more about a thing that you only know from the movie. And perhaps, I don't know if they assume that you are misinformed, but they do perhaps assume that if your only information came from Michael Curtiz, you could be better informed. Next up, we have Ecologies of Power, Countermapping, Logistical Landscapes, and Military Geographies of the U.S. Department of Defense, and this is by Pierre Belanger and Alexander Arroyo. Yeah, um, this is basically an enormous piece of cartogrammatic uh, propaganda of the best sort. Um, its thesis, and, I, and the fact that it is an enormous break-your-toe book, uh, its physical presentation, everything about this book goes to the argument that the United States Department of Defense is a giant monster bestriding the world. And that even its most innocuous actions, such as stockpiling weapons somewhere, have an enormous footprint that we never notice. And the the book and the maps in it attempt to demonstrate the level of uh, geographic commitment that is imposed on America and uh, that America then imposes on its allies and on its uh, war theaters to sustain the operations of the Defense Department. And... First of all, it, of course, has to do a deep dive into the detail. So uh, there's about five or six subsections. One of the sections is about uh, the Chagos Archipelago and Diego Garcia, which is a, a, a pre-planning hub in the Indian Ocean and a base from which the United States operates in South Asia. Um, and so there's a giant, there's more than you ever knew about Diego Garcia. It's all mapped, everything about that. Um, uh, there's um, a what they call a geo geopolitical archaeology of the roadside bomb, looking at a highway in Afghanistan. Um, it talks about uh, how you ship food back and forth uh, for uh, America, uh, for American arms. It talks about the drone uh, war and uh, how drones go and, and how they're uh, guided. And then finally, it talks about the degree to which uh, the Defense Department has basically taken over the capital and made it a defense district, not a civilian capital at all. And so all of this is done with beautiful graphics, lovely pictures, great cartographic and book design instincts. And um, certainly whether you agree with its uh, the, the sort of implied moral thrust of its thesis or not, there's no disagreeing that the Department of Defense is very, very big and does a lot of things uh, that you don't necessarily know about. And this book is a gorgeous attempt to sort of um, uh, egg the pudding, but it does it merely by presenting the facts in such a arresting way that you are sort of maybe tossed out of your previous um, uh, way of thinking. In short, it's a beautiful example of the cartographic art or, or perhaps the political cartographic art, as well as being, you know, full of vital information about IEDs. From the cartography hut, uh, we go uh, to uh, one of our favorite locations, the Parlor of the Consulting Occultist, for the Apparitionists, a tale of phantoms, fraud, photography, and the man who captured Lincoln's ghost by Peter Mansoe. This is mostly a biography, I suspect, of William Mumler, who is the sort of preeminent spirit photographer of the spiritualist age in America. So uh, when the Fox sisters started the table wrapping and everyone suddenly came down with the seance fever, 
Mumbler said, why not combine this with the cutting edge art of photography? So he's like the guy who in the 1990s was saying, what if we made it web enabled? <laughs> Except he's <laughs> saying it about um, uh, cameras. Right. And he was also saying, I I'm going to just make a wild guess here. How do I monetize this? He may or may not have been saying, how do I monetize this? He was not saying, how do I gamify this? So we have that to thank him for. But yes, there's lots and lots of pictures. He would go and he would take pictures of people and say, oh, look. Your grandma's there behind you in the picture. How great is that? And part of it is the history of forgery. Part of it is the history of uh, photography. Part of it is just social history. And part of it is just, holy crap, he's photographing ghosts. How great is that? And indeed, he does, I guess, as the pinnacle of his career, take a picture of Mary Todd Lincoln with the ghost of Lincoln behind her, uh, visible. I have not yet read the part where we get Mary Todd Lincoln's reaction to that. Uh, but apparently she didn't order him to smash the plate because there's a reproduction of the picture right here in the book. And, um, uh, and anyway, Mumbler is, is a guy who I'd run across before, but I didn't have a biography of him. And the whole topic is fascinating anyway. So it's sort of its own justification. Right. And, uh, finally we wrap up with, uh, the, uh, the friend of Elliptonus, uh, everywhere, which is the location centered compendium of uh, weirdness and elliptony. In this case, we are specifically looking at ghosts for, uh, these are both retold by Tom Ogden. We have Haunted Chicago and Haunted Colleges and Universities. So, uh, Ken, you had to go to New York to find a book about Chicago. I prefer to say it that even in New York, the books you want are books about Chicago. But yeah, Haunted Chicago is basically um, a lot of these are in the other Haunted Chicago books that I had. But it's a it's a it's a nice looking book um, uh, uh, quality out there. And it's always good to have more versions of the same story or perhaps even stories you didn't already know. So I was not immediately aware that uh, the LaGrange Public Library was haunted. But now I am. Um, I'm not ever in LaGrange, but you know, use, useful information. And then haunted colleges and universities goes through colleges and universities all over this great land of ours. And for each of the, um, uh, states, uh, it provides a, uh, at least one and usually many haunted universities. And this is good if you're playing a, uh, bubble gumshoe game in which your characters are teens at college, or if you're doing anything with a college in it, you're miskatonic, you can take all of these haunting stories and apply them to your Miskatonic University. I think the notion of a college-centric uh, ghost game or college-centric magic game in general is pretty strong. I thought that before Harry Potter, and I think it now. And I um, uh, uh, also, I really, really, really liked Pamela Dean's novel Tam Lin. And so anything that reminds me of Tam Lin is a pretty much a lead pipe cinch to be snatched up. And a book about haunted colleges and universities, again, it speaks for itself. Well, listener, if you're... Uh uh, hearing this podcast while uh, sitting in a steady carol and you see that there's something levitating in the carol next to you, uh, we'll provide you the cover to uh, flee and, and withdraw uh, from whatever haunt or apparition is uh, overdue on returning its library books. Uh, and uh, so we'll fight the ghost, but uh, uh, we'll be back uh, next week and undoubtedly uh, having either fought the ghost or, or paid its fines. 
Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Ask Fagalm. Arc Dream. Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question-asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Prevent a tragic ending to this podcast by joining such patrons as... Callan Kadiev. Lee Carnell. Louis Sylvester. Paul and Cleo Bushland. And the Esoteric Order of Role Players. Snag Ken and Robin Apparel and other erudite merchandise. At tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. New designs include... Wielding fennel without proper church authority. And this bicycle does not make toast. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>